0: So come and remember who you are here. Do this to remember who I am. Come and remember you belong here. And all belong here. Would you pray with us? God of hope and of newness and of restoration. Lord, we come and gather tonight with excitement uh, to kick off a new season. God, the newness that you will bring among us. God, the ways that you have called us to be a part of this family. And Lord, the way that you um, seek us out to serve you. And Jesus, we ask that we would be um, present to you this night, that we would know that you are among us, And that, Lord, that we would follow the leading of your spirit. We are grateful for this place, um, for this community, for a place to belong. um, For a place to know that we can come as we are. So, God, we give you um, all the love that we have. um, And we anticipate what you will say to us this day. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
1: Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the new season of the table 2023-2024. My name is Matt Moberg, I'm one of the leaders of the community. Thank you for being here tonight. This is a momentous moment for us where we just want to love that shirt. Had one of the mom, did I not have that exact same cutoff teenage Mutant? Can you imagine that brand has survived all of these decades? Unbelievable. Looking sharper. Hey, we're grateful that you're here. This is our, somebody tell me if I'm wrong, Maggie, I think you'll know more than anybody else. I want to see our seventh year as a church. Yeah? Please, no, 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 no. don't get excited about it. Are you kidding me right now? Please hold your applause to the end. That is a, one person was excited. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, it is. Let's go. We've reached the peak, the wholeness, the number seven, which means that we're going to be done after tonight, actually. We've, we've peaked, and we, we have no more work to do. But that is not a small thing. And, and honestly, it hit me. Um, actually, Katie, when you were singing tonight, had that moment where I looked around the room, and um, it's a big deal. We are still a small community, but this is a big deal. We have a pulse in our people. We're still showing up. We're still gathering to ask, how are you? We're still swapping stories, rooting ourselves in a bigger story, still trying to pursue something new and what's next and what's beautiful and what's graceful. We're still here. And and I typically don't start any kind of message with a prayer. The reason behind that is this, not because I'm against prayer. Let me be clear, because now that I already said that. Oftentimes, I found myself early on when I was starting sermons with prayers, I would be like rearranging notes in my head and, like, just you know what I mean, Debbie? <laughs> we just say words and I'm like, this is not pure. If it's polluted by me, let me just get out of the way. So that's why I haven't. But I do feel like as we stand together on the starting line of 2023 and 2024, we ought to be grateful for the very fact that our doors are still open. Who knows what's coming? Who knows what kind of limps and bruises. We will pick up along the way, chaos and confusion, but we are still here. And so my invitation for us as we gather tonight is that if we could just start with one moment to recognize source, the thing that we are all plugged into, God, and just say thank you. Jesus, you are the son of love. You are the hand that has sustained us all the way through. You are the one... I can't believe that we're still here. I can't make sense of why we are still here. The only logical explanation is that you are active and present among this people, God. People who have been told that you do not have a space in your company, who have been told that you do not belong in the church, God. You are present and actively and aggressively reminding them that that is not true. This is a space where all people are seen, safe, and celebrated as they are. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We are grateful. And all God's children, we say together, amen, amen, amen. So we are in the part of the worship program right now. We gather every Sunday night for those of you who have yet to be fully You know, I don't know if you've interacted much with us in the past, but on our Sunday night service, this is what we do. We sing worship songs with Christian in the band, and we say these words that we, on our best of days, are trying to believe are true. We're trying to muster that up within. And then we get to this sermonic space right here where we situate our stories inside of a bigger story, our sacred story, the text presented to us in the Bible, and look for some kind of nutritional reason why we should keep doing so. And so that's what we do. Tonight is, is, is a continuation of that effort. Tonight we are going to uh, be camping out in the gospel of Mark. Heads up, we're going to keep doing that for the whole year. The whole year, from now until the end, we'll be going line by line in the gospel of Mark. I know you guys came here for some kind of like sexy new sermon series. And I hate to let you down, but that's just not a cup of tea. Like what we want to do is get out of the way and let us all camp ourselves inside of this sacred story and go, what is there that is here for me and how do I respond to it accordingly? And so we're going to do that. And so that one on that screen before you is to signify that we're going to camp out in chapter one probably for the next couple weeks before we get to chapter two. That's how slow we're going to digest this food. We're going to chew it. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to pull our seats up at this table and actually take part in this meal in a way that is reflective of the worthiness of the gospel. Before we do, though, I say this every time before I get into any kind of message, and I want to make sure it's plainly heard right now. You might pick up something that is helpful for you in this space. You might not. A little bit of a crapshoot. Is it crab or crap? doesn't matter at this point. Um, I don't know what you're going to gain from the sermonic space that we're trying to offer up. But if you hear nothing else, you came into this space tonight, please walk out with this. Who you are is so much more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. I know that there are 10,000 different avenues that we all tread upon to try to prove our worths and gain enough, like, nods of approval and rounds of applause to say, see, I do belong on earth still. I do have reasons to justify my existence, and if I did this more often or I did that, I don't care what you said or did not say. I don't care what you did or left undid. I don't care, you know, whether you played with your kids enough or you didn't talk to them at all. The bottom line, the base core truth that that resonates at the core of who you are Come into this space every Sunday, where we're gonna remind you is that who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Hear nothing else but do hear that. And the reason why we're so redundant about that part is because we're so forgetful about that part. You can call it like situational amnesia, right? When we take a couple of hits. We go through these stretches of loneliness. or We pick up these bruises along the way that we didn't see coming. The different kind of curveballs that come our way when we thought we were going this particular way. We had a script in hand. Monday we looked like this. Tuesday we looked like that. The rug got pulled and all of a sudden, and now I'm wondering, like, does God, A, exist, but, like, if he does or she does or they do, like, are they for me? We tend to forget to look to our maker for some semblance of a mirror. We tend to lose our step when we try to say, when I look at God, when Paul writes to let us live up to the calling that we have already attained, let us be who we actually are. Life comes our way and it trips us up and keeps us from doing so. Here's the bridge. Nobody knew that better than Mark's community. John Mark wrote his gospel in about 64, 65 roughly. A.D. And that was a time, you might not know it, but when the smoke was still lingering in the air. Mark wrote his gospel in the heart of Rome. A small little Christian community, there's a few different scattered outposts that were um, hanging around at that point. But what's important for us to understand is that he was writing a wartime account of the life of Jesus. The first to actually do so. When Matthew... And Luke and John, they try to come up with their own stories of Jesus. They look to Mark. They call it like checking their work. I would call it plagiarism, but that's not my place. But they would look to Mark as like they debut, the first to break out of the scene and say, this is the life of Jesus, influenced and inspired by Peter's own interpretation of the life of Jesus. We have this gospel of Mark that is written in 65 A.D. Historians in our community would raise your hand right now and they would say something big happened in Rome at 64 A.D. In a southern slum in one of the districts of Rome, on July 18th A.D. 64, there was a fire that broke out. That fire, due to the winds at hand, Uh, It quickly spread to the north, devoured nearly 75% of what was the glories of Rome. Everything that they knew turned to ash. It was blown away. What was, was no more. It was gone. Mark was writing, with that smoke still lingering in the air. At the end of all the fires, six days, seven nights, when it finally came to an end, there were thousands of people who were dead. There were thousands of people who were homeless. And everybody around them was looking and going like, who, who did this? Like, I mean, obviously somebody is like complicit in the problem at hand. Somebody did the thing that we're all dying from right now. Who started this mess? Who was the spark before the fire? Who was the one who didn't put it to stop? Who failed to turn on the hoses? Who was responsible for this? And they all kind of collectively agreed and go, well, probably Nero, right? I mean, that's where we get the, the, the term, is it a term? The quote, while Rome burned, Nero fiddled. Nero was fiddling while Rome was burning. That's not actually historically true, but the point still stands. The people surveyed the mess at hand. 75% of Rome, the Rome that they had loved, was decimated, left to dust, left it in the ashes. And they looked to the one person that they knew had a track record of ugly. Nero had a track record of killing his own mom after sleeping with her for a while. He then proceeded to kill his first wife. Encore performance was he killed his second wife while she had a baby within her. He then saw one of his top senators in the Roman, and he said, like, your your expression tends to be overly melancholic. That's the words written down in history. Like, your resting face is not pleasant to my eyes. You got to go. And so, of course, when everyone reads the absurd atrocities of an emperor like Nero, they're thinking, if anybody's behind a hot mess like this, probably him. Furthermore, he was in the press running his mouth not that long prior to about how he wasn't psyched about the aesthetics of Rome as it currently stood. So he was looking for something kind of new. Now history would go on to show you, it would sober you up from the fanaticism I'm trying to invite you into and tell you that uh, Nero was actually far away, probably about 50 miles away from Rome at this point. So we might not have had much to do with this first fire, but it did have something to do with the second one. The people gathered up these rumors and this steam and they came and they said, Nero, you did this, just come clean, we'll figure out what the next steps after are. Right. And uh, he said, no, no, I didn't do that, it had nothing to do with it. I was fiddling, my album was gonna be hot, I didn't know it was set the whole city on fire, but I had nothing to do with this mess, but I can tell you who did. Nero was in the crosshairs of the public and he sidesteps out of it and he puts the Christians in it. These are the stories of the spiritual ancestors upon which our tradition stands. Nero says, I didn't do anything, I didn't start that fire in the southern district of the Palatine Hill. Had nothing to do with it whatsoever, but I can tell you who did it. It was those Christians, those followers of the insurrectionists from Nazareth, the one that we put six feet under the ground, the one that they insist is still the son of love. Those people, they are the spark that lit the fire that ruined all of our lives. And the situation unfolded according to the narrative Of the day. You know, uh, I was in South Africa when I first got out of college, and there's one sign that um, always held up uh, in the orphanage I was volunteering at. It said, Until the lion has its own historian, the hunter will be the hero. Profound, beautiful sign. Point being is this is that if Nero has the historians, If Nero is the storyteller, if Nero is the one casting the narrative over the land, Nero is the one who is saying that we did nothing to start this fire, but I know who did. It was the Christians. What happened next was atrocities, injustice. Roman soldiers went into the streets and they looked for the leaders of the church. Once they found those leaders, they bound them up, arrested them, tortured them. And kept torturing them until they coughed up the entire church directory. Everybody who was participating in the life of the church at that present moment in 65, 66, 67 A.D., we want to know their names, we want to know where they are, we want to know their information, bring them to us now. Once they did, if they did, cough that up, they'd be killed right after. One by one, Nero lined up different individuals. And he lit them on fire. Their bodies were paying for the charge of arson. And and so in Roman times, if we're going to offer you up a punishment, it has to fit the crime at hand. So if you burnt our city, we're going to burn your body. And that's what happened. But it wasn't just like, hey, we did this because you did that. It was also done with some pageantry and flair. What Nero did was he would hold these garden parties, these massive parties where the who's who of Rome would come forward and they would enjoy his presence in the, uh, and all of like the bells and whistles that come with that. And he would light the night with the bodies of Christians on stakes to serve as street light lamps. Disgusting Hard to swallow, but that's what it was. Eventually, the populace of Rome, they rose up and they go like, okay, we get, you know, I mean, that makes sense. You know, like fire for fire, I get it, but you can't tell me that like small children being put up on street light lamps, like that's, they didn't, they didn't do that fire. And Nero then went from the charge of arson to the charge of they hate humankind. And all of a sudden, anything goes. All of a sudden, Roman soldiers are in the streets. They're catching Christians who are participating in the life of the church and they're drowning them in the river next to Rome. All of a sudden, soldiers are in the streets and they're catching Christians who are participating in the life of the church and they're pinning them up on crosses. All of a sudden, these soldiers are grabbing Christians from the life of the church and they're throwing them into the Colosseum to be fed to lions. But the worst of all is this. At one point, According to one historian in the third century, what had happened was Nero ordered that we don't just get rid of them. We absolutely humiliate them, destroy them. We ruin everything that is attached to them. And he says, I want you to capture the Christians participating in the life of the church and what I want you to do next is not just capture them, but I want you to have them wrap their beloved up in animal skins, sons, brothers, friends. And then Christians, you who are captured, I want you to tell those people that they need to walk. And they did. But for only about 10 seconds before the soldiers behind them would let the dogs go wild and take them out. I'm not trying to go dark and heavy. It's kickoff Sunday. This is where we are though. (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be like if you were somebody who made it through that fire, not the first but the second. If you are somebody who had to wrap your own child up in the skins of animals and you were forced to tell them to walk. Friends who have been friends their whole lives wrapping string around their friends' bodies, and they've told each other everything. The last word they can offer to them is now walk. What would happen to your body after all this mess? When you heard a neighborhood dog start to bite, bark. What what, what would happen when you see anybody that gives you a, like a sideways glance? Who are you really? Trauma, pain, ugliness, things that have no parallel in modern times. Our spiritual ancestors, the shoulders upon which we stand today, they saw the worst of it. And in the midst of their pain, as they wandered through this wilderness of not knowing what would come, not knowing really what was happening, Mark started to write the account of the story of Jesus. In the center of Rome, Mark writes his account, and the first word is, he doesn't bring you where Matthew and Luke bring you. He doesn't say, like, hey, can I tell you all a story about a baby out in, like, Bethlehem? You're really going to enjoy this story. He doesn't bother with that kind of, like, superfluous information. He doesn't go where John is, which is not a birth of a baby, but it is the birth of a time. He doesn't go to those high heights of poetic esoterics. He, he says, this is the beginning of the good news, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is not a benign term. That's a wartime term that is like widely used in Rome at that point. Heralds would come in from Roman wars and Roman battles and say, I bring to you a gospel. And that meant I bring to you good news that the war is finally coming to an end. Your loved ones that you sent off to battle, they're going to be coming back home. Mark says, John Mark says... I bring to you the good news that the war is over. Merry Christmas of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Red flag right there. Because the only Son of God that was publicly acknowledged at that point was Caesar. This is why the Christians found themselves inside the cross here. This is because they did not acknowledge Caesar as a Son of God. They said that there is a man named Jesus born into poverty. Killed by the powers that be. Insisted upon turning the other cheek, loving the enemy, merciful, compassionate. He's the actual embodiment. He is the one who is the Son of God. Now, catch this next part right here. Patty, next slide. Mark then doesn't bring Jesus uh, front and center in the story. He says something about a guy named John. John appeared, baptizing. Well, in the wilderness, which is the exact same space that the people were there in, (laughs) the ambiguity, the lostness, the chaos, the confusion. Wilderness is a deeply pregnant word that has a Hebraic tradition of being the space between the space, the space where you don't know what's next. You don't even really remember what was. It's a mess. It's chaos. It's confusion. But there was a call from this wild proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem going out to him. Everybody was swept up in this new kind of being, this invitation that was at hand. They're baptizing him in the historic river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now don't miss this part right here. John was clothed in what mothers clothed their sons in. John was clothed in what brothers clothed their brothers in. I understand he, it, it's an echo of Elijah's wardrobe. But for the first readers, the very people that Mark was writing this gospel for, you cannot tell me that when they got to this part right here in Mark 1, when they said that their good news is coming from the wilderness. And from somebody that looked like all of our lost somebodies, the people that we told to walk, and then they were devoured by animals, that's where their mind went. These citizens, the ones who survived the second fire of Rome, they hear Mark's gospel, the first of all the gospels, the one that all the other gospels are based upon, And you're telling me that there is good news breaking in right now, even as the bad news is breaking us down right now. Lodged in all of our minds, yours, mine, first century Romans, is that we need the bad news to leave before the good news can come. We need the problem to be solved, the solution to arrive. We need the thing that has been keeping us from peace and provision and promise, all those things. In my mind, at least, it's like until I get to that place, I can't have any good breakthrough. That's not true. John said, this is, this is how life actually works. Is I'm not going to wait for all your problems to be resolved. I'm coming forward to bring good news right now. This is the parallel tracks that Heather McKinley taught us years ago. Good, bad, coexisting together. And the best part of it all, as John is there, as Mark describes, wearing the clothes of the people that they lost, wearing the symbol of their crisis, their chaos, their biggest problem, their greatest pain. He says the best is still to come. Oh, my gosh. You see how beautiful the text is when you let the text be the text? Wearing their greatest nightmare, their greatest fear. Wearing the, the very symbol of the worst thing that you could ever imagine happening to you and yours. John says I know that my, my show was selling out in town, but y'all ought to know that there is one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I've only given you water, but somebody's coming with spirit. The best is still to come. That cry, that call of the wild, maybe that's where I want to start a year off on tonight. Yeah, I mean, like the Hebrew understanding of the wilderness at hand is tied to the root word of the wilderness, which is midbar, which means to speak, which is why Hagar ran into God and God had something to say, which is why Jacob ran into God and God had something to say, which is why Elijah ran into God and God had something to say, Moses, the children of Israel, Jesus himself ran into God in the wilderness and there was something to be said. Can you hear what the voice of the wild has for your life right now? Not outside your pain, but coming through that space intimately, loudly. As we think about the next year, as we think about where we are going, we're intending to go, where we honestly want to walk. Humbly, soberly, objectively, passionately. We're not going to wait for the bad to leave, for the good to break through. It all exists together, but are you in pursuit of hope or are you held back by hardships? I I go, I, those of you who participate regularly, you know this, every Sunday, oh gosh, I should have more time because I don't want to make it sound like I'm really dark and depressing, but I'm going to. I go to the the, uh, cemetery, Lakeside, and I had this moment on my way here to church where I looked over and it was this beautiful scene. Green grass rolling, views like picturesque, gorgeous. But it was concealing bones of people who have been loved and lost. The good and the bad. Liberty pocked by injustice. Lives of joy stained by the realities of brutality in the opening word that Mark offers up to the people in Rome and to the people that we are, is that the good news of the gospel is indeed breaking forth. It's not going to wait for all of the bad to go away. It comes here right now. Are you up for the task of tending to the good as much as you are up for the task of dwelling on the bad? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we got a new year means probably 20,000 different things in our own minds, but speak to us the one true thing that matters the most. God, give us a word. Give us a hope. Give us eyes to sit in this beautiful story and have the guts to walk it all the way through. Slowly, bite, by bite, bite. Help us to pursue the good amidst all that is bad, all that is hard, all that is heavy. Help us be persistent in our pursuit of the good. In Christ's name, each and every one of us we pray, amen.
2: Amen. That's a lot to take in, Matt. There was a lot in that message. I was thinking about darkness because it felt dark and kind of heavy, but you brought it home in a good way. And um, I was thinking about for me in particular, the last week was kind of a dark, heavy surreal week those weeks where loved ones you too sweetie yeah and I think that's probably true of everyone here that we walk through those those spaces that feel like wilderness and we walk through darkness and we have loved ones that have lost loved ones and loved ones who've had new diagnoses and loved ones who've had stuff happens that puts them back But in the midst of that, Matt's right, it's not an either or, it is a both and, that there is light always in the darkness. Because in every situation I can think of in my life this week, and I'm sure you can think of yours, there is good news and that good news shows up in the people that surround us and love us and carry us in things that go beyond what we could have ever imagined would have happened this week. That's the good news, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have God and we have one another and we show up for each other. And Matt's exactly right. It happens simultaneously and light always overtakes darkness. And so when we gather on Sunday night and we share in communion, we're reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because on that night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his friends, with his disciples, and as they shared a meal, he broke bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup, and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. And when you drink from this cup, Remember me. So that's what we get to do, friends. When you come up for communion and there will be two servers here, you can take that bread and dip it into the cup. And you can remember that you're not alone. You can remember that in the wilderness there is light. There is good news. You can remember that we've got God and we've got one another. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What a beautiful time and or way to end our time together. Just the reminder, we're all heartbroken. We all have heartbreak. But great are you, Lord, because in the middle of it all, that is the good news. So we're going to end with some joy. You guys, head out there, bouncy house, the pizza's waiting, and sign-ups. And here's the other thing. If you see me coming, don't run because you know I'll get you. (laughs) Ask anyone who's been involved here. But with that, please hold your hands out for our benediction. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter who you love or what you've lost, no matter the places you've been or the places you've stayed, you always have a place at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Hey, go in peace and joy and have some pizza.